Talking about radio with guest Peter King starts in 90 seconds. When you need a partner committed to your vision, agents who are realtors are here for it. And when we're not with you, we're here advocating on behalf of communities, working to make our neighborhoods better places for all of us. Because we're realtors, experts in what we do, bound by a code of ethics. We're here for it all, because that's who we are. There's DNA. Then there's heavy-duty DNA. H-DNA. It's what every GMC Sierra HB driver is born with, and it's engineered into every aspect of the GMC Sierra HD with the pulling power to prove it. The new 2024 GMC Sierra HD. Toe hitches of the world. Prepare for glory. This is J.J. Jackson in Atlanta, host of the podcast Food Tips, The Basics and Beyond. And you're listening to the world-famous podcast Talking About Radio with John Leslie. You're about to hear one of the most fascinating podcasts available on the Internet today. Listen in now as host John Leslie and his dynamic guests are talking about radio. Thank you very much, John Morgan. John is the uh, host of a podcast called Grasshopper Notes. And they're very interesting, they're very short, and they're available wherever you get your podcast. You can find them also on YouTube. So uh, check out John Morgan's Grasshopper Notes. I am meeting today for the first time a gentleman who I've known about for probably close to 40 years. Uh, his name has been around the business for a long time. And as it seems... A lot of the successful people in our business seem to come out of the Northeast and then end up in the Midwest or the West Coast. And our guest today, uh, Peter King, is no exception. Hi, Peter. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule and being with us today. Hey, John. Nice to be with you. And thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You are a uh, Vermonter, are you, by uh, birth? No, 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 no. no. I, worked, I worked for two years in Vermont. I was actually born in Glens Falls, New York, ah. which is north of Albany. Uh, I grew up in the New York City area, just north of there, and uh, later migrated to Ithaca to go to school, Ithaca College, mm -hmm. Vermont for two years, Syracuse, 10 and a half years, Rochester for three, and since 1993, uh, down here in uh, yeah. Florida, the Orlando area, okay. in Orlando now. Well, I want to go back and and go through these steps one at a time. Now, how long were you you were you in Glens Falls? I mean, at what age did you <laughs> at, at what age did you leave? I, I was only born there, but all, but never lived there. My grandparents had a summer house uh, in Lake George, just north of there, and so Glens Falls was the nearest place yeah. for me to uh, be born. Nineteen fifty six. The the reason I'm uh, chuckling is because my daughter, Chris, is the president of SUNY Adirondack. Uh, at, uh, she lives in Queensbury. The, the campus is in Queensbury. And so that's her, she and her family, that's, their, that's where they live, you know. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with that. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the, uh, this program is heard all over the world. And uh, a lot of people don't know about Lake George and the, the Adirondacks and upstate New York. Everybody thinks New York is New York City, and um, it, it's probably one of the most beautiful places on earth, uh, up around Glens Falls and uh, um, Lake George. I'll let you talk in a minute, Peter. <laughs> Lake George uh, McDonald's is the only McDonald's in the world that closes in the wintertime because there's no there, nobody there. Actually, I had a uh, fun experience about uh, 20 years ago when I returned to the area for the first time in a long time, and it was in November, and I had never been in the area, uh, or at least uh, the village of Lake George, Lake George Village, in November when everything was shut tight, and it was quite the experience. It was like driving through a ghost town, but it was kind of fun to have the run of the place, except there was no place to have the run of. Yeah. On the other hand, in the summertime, 
Uh, it's a fabulous place. In fact, uh, I was uh, up in the Adirondacks uh, uh, for a little bit this past summer, and uh, a year ago, I had a memorable lunch uh, near Bolton Landing, near where my grandparents had their place. Oh, so, wow, yeah. You know, it's a place near and dear to my heart, but, you know, there are a couple places like that. I mean, uh, uh, I, I started in radio in central New York, in Ithaca, and ten and a half years in Syracuse, as I mentioned, and I really, in many ways, consider that home as much as... Uh, you know, the place I grew up, a small town called Dobbs Ferry, New York. Well, let me uh, uh, add some time. In- I was going to ask you about uh, your inclination to get into the radio business. We we talk about this with all of our guests, and the a lot of times the stories are just so close to the same. You know, the from the guy, young guys looking through the window, and they jock invites him in because it's raining, you know. Well, you know, it, it, it's different when you grow up near New York City because, you know, you just can't walk up to radio stations in New York City. But I was always a radio kid. And the first thing I ever did when I woke up, when I was old enough to know exactly what the radio was, was to turn on the radio. And yeah. I grew up listening to stations like uh, big AM stations like WNBC, WABC, WNEW, which was my mother's station of choice. And, and the great personalities. Uh, first time I visited a radio station was to see Ted Brown, who was doing afternoons at WNBC in 1972. I had written him a letter mm-hmm. saying, hey, listen, I'm in high school. I'm thinking of radio as a career. I'd love to come in and watch you work. Is it okay? He wrote me a lovely letter back that I still have that gave me the hotline number. Said, really? Call me the day you want to come in, well, the day before you want to come in. And uh, we'll make it happen. He said, you could stay for an hour. I wound up staying for three. And the <laughs> autographed picture, which I still have, says to Peter, you stayed for more than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I grew up listening to some of the greatest personalities in the entire universe. And of course, you know, I make no bones about it. I'm New York centric when it comes to radio. And I knew that there was great radio around the country, but we tend to yeah. romanticize what we grew up with. So, you know, the way, the way, for example, the 69 New York Mets were my boys of summer, you know, people like uh, Harry Harrison and George Michael and cousin Brucey and William B. Williams and Clavin and Finch and, yeah. and, and uh, so many others were my boys of radio, the people I grew up listening to and loving. I wonder how many people know that prior to Clavin and Finch, it was Rayburn and Finch. Gene Rayburn, who went Gene on. Gene Rayburn, of course, the great game show host. Yeah. He yeah. was he was part of that two-man team in New York City before he went on to Hollywood and fame on television. Well, and, yeah. And Ted Brown on WNEW and then WNBC was, was really one of my favorites because he was so wonderful at doing the theater of the mind thing. But so were Bob and Ray, and so were uh, people like Murray the K. And those are the things that really, really helped turn me on to radio. The other thing I always liked, and back in the days when we had, uh, you know, regular telephones and landlines rather than cell phones and wireless, it always uh, uh, attracted me that uh, uh, all you needed to do was make a phone call and get on the radio. Yeah, that's right. The, the, The stories are so similar, and I... And we've had so many guests on here, uh, and they've they've told so many great stories about how they uh, uh, found their way in, or or how the bug bit them. And and I, I remember that boy. I wish I, you would think I'd go look this guy's name up because I tell this story so often. But he was in Texas, and and he was part of a Boy Scout or a Cub Scout troop, and they went on a tour of the local radio station. And he got in there, and he said the the magic was there. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, I was struck with it. He said, so I went home, and uh, he said, I took the bottom part of a, a styrofoam cup, took the bottom out, and stuck it on the vacuum cleaner hose. And he said, and a star was born. 
you know, we all did, we all did stuff like that. And, you know, for me, I set up a little PA system in my, in my bedroom <laughs> and broadcast to the neighborhood that didn't last too long. No. Oh, cause there was, it was just loud. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't wireless. It was. <laughs> yeah. Here are the Isley brothers. It's your thing. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, my little uh, uh, one watt or half a watt little transmitter that I built uh, was not designed for the neighborhood. It was designed for the girl that lived in the house two doors up. I did all of my programming to her. Uh, and I, I, very much, I never got any feedback, and I don't think she ever got an Arbitron diary. So I don't know whether she ever heard me or not. Um, so what, what station did you actually start at? First radio station was my college radio station at Ithaca college. Uh, and in those days, WICB 91.7, uh, was 10 Watts with a, uh, transmitter the size of a mini fridge (laughs) in in, uh, a small closet in the back of the control room. But you know what? I'll tell you this. I got there as a freshman in 1974 and the uh, student managers and student air staff were, there was a great era of professionalism and we broadcast as if we were 50,000 Watts because mm-hmm. we cared about getting it right. We knew that there were real people listening out there and we didn't want to screw up. And so it was, uh, it was a very big deal for me to get on the air. In fact, uh, 49 years ago this month for the first time uh, as as a jock. And I started on Saturday afternoons and gradually got better. And it was a great place to learn. Station uh, grew, uh, became 5,500 watts in early 1976. And, you know, today it's regarded as one of the best college radio stations in the country still. It certainly was when I was there. It was a wonderful place to learn and grow. uh, I started doing uh, some news stuff, some sports stuff, and then I just discovered, you know, being a jock was something that I loved doing because I loved the music and uh, loved being able to, you know, feel like you were having fun on the mm-hmm. air. Well, that's part of the deal is having fun on the air. And if you're not having fun, the audience can hear it. And if you are having fun, they can hear that as well. And I, th- this again, yeah. and, and yeah. I, I want to, Mention that uh, I said earlier that a lot of people are not familiar with the um, Adirondack region of upstate New York, and a lot of people are not aware of the Finger Lakes region of New York, and particularly in this case, Ithaca. Uh, Ithaca is not only the home of uh, Ithaca College, which has a world-class communications uh, department, but it is also the home of Cornell University. So in this little town on the steep slopes of the Cayuga of Lake of uh, Cayuga Lake, Cayuga Lake, uh, are these two magnificent universities? <laughs> well, and 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 we should mention that uh, WVBR, the student-owned and operated station at uh, Cornell, has been around forever, and they are fabulous, and they have been fabulous. And I'll do a short plug here because my brother and I wrote a book about Ithaca Radio called. Ithaca Radio, and you can read about the history of uh, not just WICB and WBBR, but the two big commercial radio stations, WHCU and WTKO, where I later worked and my brother later worked. Um, and back in the day, you know, those were the those were the four big and pioneer stations. These days, of course, you know, it's uh, mostly FM. And uh, WHCU, which uh, is one of our CBS affiliates, and I'm mm. drinking out of their mug this morning. They're <laughs> uh, still live and well at 8.70 a.m., but they also have a simulcast on FM, and there are other AM stations there. But, you know, like every place else, FM is kind of ruling the roost, and it was a wonderful place in the day to start out. And I am so grateful for the time that I spent there because it allowed me to jump into uh, – other places and bigger markets. And, uh, I had a great time staying in music radio for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I did the opposite of what you did. I spent my first seven years in news. I thought that I was going to be a news guy because I've always been a fire truck chaser. 
I was a volunteer firefighter in my hometown when I was 16 years old. That went for 25 years. Wherever, wherever we moved, which was a lot, the first thing I would do is find out what communities had volunteer fire departments. And so we would move there, and I would join the fire department. So I always thought that I was going to be in news, and it wasn't until 71, uh, and I started in 66, 65, uh, that I actually made, no, 70, no, 74, 73, 74, I made the move, not, not voluntarily. Uh, my employers said, we think that your news style would suit a morning show. And I said, oh, no, I'm a news guy. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't stoop to going <laughs> being a morning show disc jockey. And then for the next 45 years, <laughs> that's what I did. So when you left WTKO in Ithaca, which has a great reputation in central New York, um, is that when you went to, up to uh, Burlington, Vermont? Right. I went to Burlington, Vermont after I graduated. And while I was while I was working uh, at TKO, I was still a full-time student. And also I was working part-time at Wolf in Syracuse. I spent a whole two months there, but hey, it was back when when it was a flame-throwing yeah. rock and roll station. I had a great time. I spent two years in Burlington, Vermont at WDOT, and then wound up for 10 and a half years at my dream station in Syracuse which was one of the last great AM powerhouse, full service music, news, full service AM radio stations. Uh, 620 on the dial, 62 mm -hmm. WHEN. It was a fabulous station. I was there for 10 and a half years uh, and really the last years of its heyday as a great radio station. And uh, I started there in 1980. I did overnights for two and a half years. I did middays through 1988, and then they put me on the morning show on the FM station, which turned from country to beautiful music. Mm -hmm. And then I wound up uh, being program director for both stations for my last couple of years there. So it was quite the experience, and I wouldn't trade a minute of it. Well, there were some great program directors came out of WHEN, uh, Jim Ashbury, uh, some great, yep. uh, great morning show entertainers and good friend of mine, Phil Markert. Uh, was he there yep. when you were with Phil? Oh, you know what? Uh, the, the lineup when I was there in 1980 started with Ray Diorio in the morning. And I oh, bet Ray you know D. of Ray through Binghamton. Ray, Ray just had the most, the smoothest, most perfect delivery in the history of the universe uh joe gallagher did middays jay flannery did afternoons dick o'neill did nights and i did overnights when gallagher left i wound up in middays ray diorio left to go to mobile alabama i yeah. believe yep 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 Pen mobile pensacola in uh, 1985 phil Markard, who had been at when in the 70s for a couple of years no and who i listened to when i was in ithaca Phil came in in 1985. I worked with him for five years. One of the best people I have ever worked with and a wonderful talent and a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have never enjoyed working with anybody more than Phil. Absolutely. Well, uh, Phil had a piano in the studio with him and uh, he would play and sing yes, and, and he would sing the school lunch menus. Uh, <laughs> he still did that back in the eighties and, you know, he did his shtick. That's, you know, that's what he was known for and he did it. And, uh, you know, he, Phil could only be Phil and, yeah, yeah. uh, we were thankful that he was. Well, I did compete against Phil, uh, in Binghamton. Uh, I had a pretty strong hold on, on the market, uh, at WNBF and, and they wanted WINR and I forget who was own, who owned it at that time. I think a, a dentist in, in town and uh, they brought Phil down from Syracuse to, to do mornings at WINR and uh, he did his thing there. And unfortunately for Phil uh, talented that he was, they were on the wrong end of the dial they were way down like, at, uh, you know, five seventy or somewhere down there. 
And nobody ever went down there. Everybody was all clumped up. Everybody was listening up in the local frequencies in the 14s and the 12s and the whatever and 13s, whatever else they were. And um, it didn't didn't work out for him. And the morning that the Arbitron book came in and and it was it was sad for WINR. They, they just didn't do well. And I called Phil uh, that morning and I said, Phil, this is a real insult to a great talent like you. I said, I just don't believe it. I, I uh, you take any heart in it that you can, but this is not, these are not Phil Markert numbers. And uh, he was grateful. I mean, I'm sure he felt, you know, pretty bad because he was used to being, uh, uh, you know, gathering pretty high ratings most of the time. So you were, uh, what was the FM station, the calls in Syracuse? Is WRHR? Was that the FM? Okay, well, when, when I started there in 1980, it was WONO, and it was beautiful music and uh, a 50,000-watt stick that had like a one share in 1980. <laughs> yeah, don't they? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was before FM really became FM. Uh, Bob Carolyn, who was our general manager, uh, uh, uh wound up flipping it to country in 1981 and it wound up uh being a ratings winner we put the uh heritage country station wsen out of business and they wound up converting to oldies in about four years we had great personalities on wrrb and then in about 1987 or 88 Roy Park, uh, we were owned by Park Communications. Mm -hmm. Roy bought WPAT, the beautiful music giant in New York City, actually Patterson, New Jersey, Patterson with one T. And Roy being an older gentleman and his wife being an older woman fell in love with a beautiful music format. And he decided, <laughs> hey, I want to flip all my FMs to beautiful music. And at that time, it was the number one station in New York. So number one in the New York market which meant, you know, biggest market in the in the country. So he flipped seven winning country stations that were making money to beautiful music oh in my. 1988, including ours. And that was the beginning of, uh, of the end in a lot of ways for, um, for uh, radio broadcasting for that company. Uh, and it's a shame because, you know, he owned... He owned seven AMs, seven FMs, and seven TVs at a time when that was the limit. And this was just before all the consolidation was starting. Mm -hmm. This was just before, you know, LMAs and and uh, duopolies and <laughs> clusters became the thing in the 90s. But, you know, this was a vanity format for him. He wanted the beautiful music. He got the beautiful music. Advertisers weren't buying it, and uh, that's kind of how it went. So uh, I, I left. I left uh, Park in nineteen ninety. Wound up at WKLX FM in Rochester doing an oldies morning show for three years or so. Got fired on my birthday in nineteen ninety three. Oh. The woman I was married to at the time was also in the business. Her name was Simone. And we had known each other in Syracuse and were together in Rochester and got married in Rochester, at, uh, as a matter of fact. And she had gotten let go at the same time. So we decided, you know, we're going to throw our tapes up in the air and let's see who lands a good gig in a good place first. She wound up getting hired uh, to go on the air in Daytona Beach. And I thought, you know what? After uh, all these years in the Northeast, yeah. Florida sounds really good, especially since she got hired uh, in in the fall of 1993 when the snow was about to come. Yeah, yeah. Now, in in those, let me see if I can remember correctly. Uh, I, I worked for Stoner Broadcasting, and I was fortunate enough as a result of a special project that I did for Tom Stoner, the CEO of the company. I was allowed to. Uh, purchase stock. Uh, and, and so I became part of ownership of Stoner Broadcasting. And so I get to say our stations, you know, uh, uh, my, my little uh, minuscule little ownership. But uh, we had a station in Rochester at that time, W. Uh, 
No, YRK was in Buffalo. W, where Brother Weeze was, did the morning show? W, WCMF. Yeah, WCMF. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Weeze, I competed against Weeze. I was doing the morning show uh, at the old Monroe Square building. We were on the second floor. Weeze and WCMF were on the first floor, and we'd run into those guys all all the time they're great people uh great competitors and they were a juggernaut they were the top station in the market yeah, yeah. and we we have a, another mutual friend who probably was still there at that time working at WHAM uh um Bill Lau um was oh, the I morning Bill, news I guy Bill. and yeah and, and he he was terrific news director there and he was one of the people who got let go in that clear channel well one of many clear channel purges yeah, isn't that a shame? But he is enjoying retirement. He is enjoying retirement and keeping very busy in retirement. Good for him. Yeah, he's of all things, he's putting lights in miniature uh, uh, little cars and uh, trucks and trains and fire trucks and locomotives, and he's making them uh, flash. And and uh, uh, the last time I talked to Bill, which was not too long ago, he's been a guest on on this program. Uh, he's like six or eight months behind uh, because he has so many orders from all around the world. Yeah. Uh, people love this stuff. If, if you've got train sets or like miniatures or whatever, Bill Lau is your guy. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. He's wonderful. Well, Peter King, uh, if I, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a little break and I want to come back and talk to you about the, the next part of your life after you've, you moved to, uh, you're down in, in Orlando and, uh, uh, I, I guess you worked on the air too in, in Daytona Beach and then in, in Orlando and working with CBS. And I want to talk about that. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a, a 90 second break and we'll be right back. As parents, we pay out the for school. So here's a novel idea just spend less on your kids. Amazon has great deals on everything kids need. Instead of spending more, he spent less. Why would a person spend more money? He's eight and he gets it. I'm 10. Hmm, that's less impressive. Spending less costs less, financially. I spend less on my grandkids. <laughs> and they don't even know it. So spend less on your kids with Amazon's back-to-school deals. It's fiscally advantageous. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. At Jersey Mike's, they slice your order fresh right in front of you. And let me tell you, watching that can send a rush of emotions through a person. Excitement, impatience, baby-like wonder, indecisive, anticipatory chewing, nervous pacing, happy claps, and finally, jealousy, because that's this guy's sub. I should order one. Mm, good idea. Sliced right in front of you. It's a Jersey Mike's thing. A sub above. In 1804, as Lewis and Clark embarked on their quest to the Pacific, one young Shoshone woman, Sacagawea, rose as their guiding light. Discover her incredible tale of courage and shape-shifting leadership in our captivating nine-episode drama. Dive into Birdwoman and be a part of history's untold adventure. Don't miss out. Listen and watch Birdwoman, the untold story of Sacagawea, on Apollo Plus, Spotify, Apple or YouTube podcasts. Hi, this is Werner from Westrand Radio, all the way from Krugersdorp in sunny South Africa. You're listening to the world-famous podcast, Talking About Radio with John Leslie. Peter King is our guest today on Talking About Radio. It is a whole nother life living in Florida. We moved here in 2001. I live uh, about uh, 55 or 60 miles from you. Uh, I live over in Winter Haven in a gated community. And not, I don't mean we're locked in. It's not like a reform uh, reformatory. It's, and there, yet, John... You have never invited me to dinner. <laughs> I, I didn't. You get them. I've I've been sending them <laughs> on a regular basis. I've been sending. Them. <laughs> it's um, life in Florida is totally different than than uh, up north, and you know, and it 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 amazes me. We've been here twenty some years now, and I still hear people saying those who have transplanted back to here to Florida, they are always talking about back home. Uh, they don't ever seem to uh, say the or consider Florida to be their home. I do. I've been here so long now that that I consider this to be uh, uh, my home. And uh, so you you mentioned Daytona, and did you when you came here? Did you go directly uh, to Daytona, or 
was it a station like in between Orlando and, and Daytona Beach? Well, uh, let me just address something you just said, because right. you brought up a really good point. I don't consider Florida home. I live here, but I, but it's not home. Home is still back up north. Yeah. And uh, in many ways, you know, Florida could never replace that now. Uh, so I understand what you're saying before. When I moved down here in 1993, it was definitely an adventure. I wound up doing some part-time work at KISS FM in Daytona Beach, where uh, my uh, then-wife, Simone, worked. So uh, I did some part-time shifts there. I wound up getting hired uh, by Bill Wathen, who was the news director at WNDB, which was a news talk station in Daytona Beach and a CBS affiliate. And they were live in the morning and live in the afternoons. And uh, I had always been interested in news and had always been well-read and well-informed and uh, all of that. And he thought that I had the smarts to be able to pull it off on the air. And that's where that's where my first news job was. So I worked there part-time. This is 1994 now, early 94. I see a classified ad in the newspaper at that time, the Orlando Sentinel, looking for news reporters at an all-news station, Orlando, WNZ, 740 Winds News. I sent a tape to Wayne Trout, who was the news director and who had been in the Orlando market forever. He had covered Apollo and all kinds of other stuff that happened here in mm -hmm. Central Florida long before I got here. Called me, said, I want you to come down. And um, we had a great interview, and he... Yeah, I, I, and uh, he, he said, I want to put you on the air this weekend, blah, blah. And I said, you do know that I've never done news before. Why why are you so anxious to hire me? And he, and he said, because you sound really good on the air, and I really need people who sound really good on the air. And I wound up doing all news radio there for uh, three and a half years under Paxson, Bud Paxson owned the stations at the time. And uh, we, we, we were the best news radio station that nobody listened to. We won all kinds of AP awards and Central Florida Press Club awards, but we had like a one share. And uh, our biggest uh, ratings came when we carried the OJ Simpson trial live <laughs> on our airwaves. <laughs> but you know what? It was a wonderful place to cut my teeth in in journalism because they let me pretty much have free run of the place and i got to report and the reporting has always been my first love in the news business uh, i i did a lot of enterprise stories and things like that and i was reporting and anchoring which was a really good mix and that's when i started feeding stuff to cbs because we were an affiliate and you could make extra money by feeding the network. Mm -hmm. And believe me, mm -hmm. I was not getting rich here. So every dollar counted. And after a while, you know, I don't want to say that I was doubling my paycheck because it wasn't quite that much. But, you know, I was getting on the network every day just feeding them stories that I was already covering. Yeah, and it was yeah. wonderful. And it meant my friends and family uh, could hear me, you know, in New York or any place else. And I thought that was pretty damn cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I wound up when Clear Channel sold, bought the stations from Bud Pax and they didn't hire me. And that turned out to be the biggest break of my career because uh, I wound up working for the network freelance as a uh, basically as a full time freelancer for them for four or five years. I was also doing, you know, a little bit of work for Voice of America and a couple of organizations, but primarily CBS. And I was covering space for them starting in 1997 when the space shuttle program was still in full swing. So I was keeping busy and making enough money as a freelancer uh, to, to live pretty well down here. I mean, uh, network freelance bucks are pretty amazing. And they allowed me to buy the house in which I'm from which I'm talking to you now and, uh, you know, do other things as well. I wound up full-time at CBS in 2002 when I got an offer to go across the street. Uh, a guy named Chris Berry, who is still a big, big, big mocker, if you will, in the business. And one of my favorite people, uh, Chris tried to hire me for ABC News. And he was an ex-CBS guy. And he said, look, I know you have to go back and 
tell them and give them a chance to match this. I give I give you that. I hope they won't because we'd love to have you. Mm-hmm. Um, they matched it, and I wound up full time uh, at CBS, and it was it, it was. I'm glad I got to stay there because it worked out very very well. So I've been a full time correspondent since 2002, uh, covering. Actually, not have been. I I uh, stepped back a bit last year, but you know that's a different story. Uh, over the years, I've I've covered some of the biggest breaking news stories as a reporter. I've anchored hundreds, maybe thousands of newscasts by now, and of course covered the second half of the space shuttle program, including uh, the building of the International Space Station, the um, Columbia accident and uh, all kinds of other interplanetary probes and uh, you know private space companies like SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin over the years. And you know that because of proximity. I live about an hour away from the space center mm-hmm. and I grew up a space geek. So you know that that was the dream gig. And uh, doing all the other stuff allowed me to keep doing that and has allowed me to keep doing that. Now there were um I was familiar with the uh, the NBC the guy that the uh, space reporter for NBC was Jay Barbree. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Uh, did Did you know Jay? I knew Jay, and uh, you know Jay uh, was very very good to me very very early on. Um, I, I sat with him in uh, his home over in. Uh, uh, on Merritt Island back in the mid nineties, when I was putting together a retrospective of the Mercury program and he set me up with some other people, gave me a terrific interview that I wound up uh, using many, many times in the future. And sadly wound up using when, when he died a few years ago and I did, uh, uh, produced an obituary we ran on CBS. I mean, Jay, covered uh, so many human space flight launches mm-hmm. through Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, all of those, and every space shuttle launch. And, uh, you know, that's that's a record nobody will ever break. It, it was pretty amazing. I had occasion, I was uh, for about nine years, when we were living in Plant City, which is about uh, 20 miles, 15 miles from here, I was a member of the... Uh, Country Club, the public supermarket chain owns, uh, Lone Palm Country Club. Jay Barbree's cousin was a member. And he and I uh, would team up as uh, partners uh, to, and play golf quite frequently. So the, it was kind of cool because, you know, there aren't many of us around, I mean, broadcasters, you know, around. And so it, it gave um, uh, him an opportunity to talk about something that he knew a little bit about. And and he was surprised that I even knew who Jay Barbary was and his cousin and well, uh, so it was just kind of cool, you know. It just uh, uh, created a bond that he wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. Well, growing up, I was an NBC kid, and I loved the team that covered space for NBC. Jay was one of those guys, and uh, that I got to know him a bit and uh, work in the building next to his at the Cape. I thought that was pretty cool. They had a great stable of reporters who covered space. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, look, the best thing about our business is the people you meet along the way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was certainly one of the most memorable. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the people you meet around along the way. And uh, I was looking at uh, some of your Facebook information and you and I have like 25 mutual friends uh, in the broadcasting business and, you know, Facebook does oh, yeah. that. And and some of those people I understand are, are not necessarily our pals. They, they, they are people we've run across and then, then they send you a friend request. And so suddenly now you're, you're their friend, or at least it looks that way on, you know, on, on Facebook, but it, but it, it, it has broadened our fraternity uh, and, and doing this program, I've met uh, some of the top people in the industry. You know, we've had Walter Sabo on here. We've had John Landecker. Uh, I mean, who gets John Landecker on as a guest? You know, and uh, um, so it, it's a it's a great opportunity to to broaden my horizons this the, this late in my life. You know, we uh, my wife and I uh, prior I was prior to obviously 
but prior to the time we came down before we moved down here, we were here on a vacation at uh, over on the East Coast, and we decided to take the uh, tour of uh, the Cape. And the way it works, folks, is if you're going to take a tour, you get a tour bus. So they have these shuttle buses that takes you to stop one. And you get off and you do the tour of this building. And then you come back out to the bus stop and then the bus comes up and everybody on the bus gets off. And then you get on and they take you to stop two. And so on all the way around. So this particular day, it was so cold that nobody was getting off the bus. And there were st- <laughs> <laughs> people don't realize that sometimes it does get cold down here, but cold, <laughs> excuse me, cold here is all relative. You know, it cracks me up to see people bundling up when it's, you know, 55 or 60 degrees because you and I, having lived in the Northeast, we know what real yeah. cold is like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Some> freezing. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're standing there, you know, and, and the bus drivers are saying, all right, folks, you, you really want to get off and see, you, you don't want to pass up this building. This is a great building. And we're saying, yeah, yeah, get off. <laughs> we want to get on the bus. So we stood there forever. The, uh, yeah. it, it amazes me, uh, Peter, how many people still flock to the East Coast, to the Cape, to see these launches? Uh, thousands and thousands of people. And this is how many years we're talking uh, half a century. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe not that long. Yeah. Well, since, since the late 1950s, 1958 or so, but here's the thing you will run into people who lived here in Florida during the space shuttle era, who never witnessed a space shuttle launch up mm. close and personal, even though it was right in their backyard. It's kind of like people who, you know, never visited the twin towers, which are now gone in New York because they figured they'd always be there. The Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People figured that would always be there and never bothered to go. Uh, for those who never saw a shuttle launch, that's a shame because it is. it was one of those most spectacular, loudest, mm-hmm. thunderous things you could ever see or hear or feel. And... Uh, the uh, Artemis moon rocket is even bigger and louder. And when it launches next time, and NASA is hoping to do that late next year, uh, that's going to that's gonna attract a lot of people. But we still get a lot of people along the coast for the SpaceX launches, which are less powerful, but no less spectacular. Yeah. And, and they're happening pretty often. They're going to have in the neighborhood of 100 launches this year, which is uh, an amazing launch rate. And by the way, that's, that's a record. I, it's amazing how, how many launches. They, I, I just can't imagine the money, the amount of money that goes into not only each launch, but 100 launches. Yeah, but keep in mind that the SpaceX model is reusability. And uh, the first stages and engines are all reusable, as are the Dragon capsules that they launch to the International Space Station, whether they be the crew version or the cargo version. Uh, and uh, they have developed a faster, better, cheaper model than anybody else did, and they have made it work. Yeah. Now, uh, um, I think a lot of us were extremely skeptical. A lot of the NASA people were extremely skeptical. The old timers who said, oh, yeah, they're going to cut corners and this and that and this and that. And, and really, there, there's been no evidence of that. Uh, Elon Musk is driven. He's a bit of a maniac, and if you read Walter Isaacson's new book, new biography on him, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But, but, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing what he's developed in terms of his space company. And you know, I wouldn't bet against him when he says, "I want to go to Mars." Uh huh. <laughs> he's going to do it. I was just sitting here thinking. If I'm not mistaken, the CBS reporter who preceded you or at some point before you at the Cape was also an Ithaca College uh, grad, Christopher Glenn. 
uh, I don't know that Chris went to Ithaca College. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But yeah, Chris was my predecessor. And uh, I'll tell you this, I worked with Chris for about a decade or so. And I always felt like anytime one of my stories got on one of his newscasts, I must have done something really, really right. Uh, Chris died in 2006, shortly after he he retired from us. Uh, a lot of people will remember him from in the news on TV, but wow, he was a terrific radio broadcaster with us, a radio journalist with us, and before that, WNEW Radio in New York, and just the kindest, most gracious uh, co-worker that you could have. I, I, I treasure the memory of having worked with him, John. He was wonderful. He... He was a great storyteller. His ability to uh, communicate, in fact, I think that he did uh, a network um, program for children uh, or a news yeah, a news, newscast. That's the, the, what, I, what, I, what I mentioned a second ago, that was on Saturday mornings. And it was, uh, you know, so many kids of uh, who grew up in the 70s remember that show. And when I, you know, when I would tell friends, uh, yeah, well, one of the people I work with is, and they said, oh, my God, I used to see in the news on Saturday mornings in between the cartoon shows and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and Chris was iconic for that generation because of that. I I, I laugh. I'm going to let you go here. I know I, you're on a schedule. You've got some other things coming up. Uh, but I early on in my career, when I back when I was still thinking I was a news guy, I was working in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, WBVP in Beaver Falls. Maybe you're familiar with that station. Uh, it was in the northern shadow of Pittsburgh. And uh, we had this character in town. Every town has its characters. And we had this uh, character. His, his name was Sluggo. And uh, Sluggo would walk around town, and, and he, they, the, the locals talked him into running for constable. And he won, but he couldn't, he couldn't take office because the sheriff wouldn't give him a gun permit um, because Sluggo was just a, a town character, right? So after I left Beaver Falls and it was years later and I'm, I think I was in Kansas City and I'm driving along one night and I had CBS radio on and uh, they said, and this, you know, this in from Beaver County, Pennsylvania, a, um, uh, Tornado has struck a shopping complex, a, a, a mall complex. And uh, well, there's another thing about Sluggo. He was a big liar. Uh, and uh, so they, so this is years later, and I, and they said this uh, uh, tornado has taken the roof off of this uh, mall, and we have an eyewitness here, and uh, uh, he's live with us now, Sluggo. <laughs> And he's going. Well, let that be a lesson to you. Uh, news reporters always look for witnesses to natural disasters, and you never know uh, what's going to happen when you put in, put put a mic in front of somebody or who you're going to wind up getting. Uh, and, and God knows I've done enough of those in hurricanes and earthquakes and uh, uh, tornadoes and other stuff. I never encountered Sluggo, however. <laughs> Well, Peter, this has been great. Uh, the, the time passes by very quickly, and uh, uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. And uh, I, I feel like I, when I saw your name and we first made contact, I'm saying to myself, well, I know this guy, you know, like Jeff Lawrence. Je uh, Je uh, Jeff has been around for uh, 50 years and everybody knew yeah. Jeff Lawrence, but I never met him until we did this program. And now he and I are buddies. And a fellow Ithaca College grad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was ours. Look, look, I, I've known I've known your name for years. It was, it was a pleasure to finally uh, meet you face to face, voice to voice here. Yeah. And glad, glad we've uh, been acquainted. I used to enjoy you on WGY and uh, Albany, Schenectady, Troy. Uh, later, I heard you in Binghamton and. Uh, you know, I worked with uh, a guy at the National uh, Weather Service or at NOAA whose name was John Leslie. It turned oh. out it wasn't you. But, that, you know, I had no idea. The first thing that occurred to me. I had no idea. There, there was also go. a guy in, in the UK who was a, a big time uh, radio TV presenter. 
in the UK, John Leslie. He got in trouble with the ladies. <laughs> so, you know, whenever you I'm glad that wasn't you. Whenever you Google John Leslie, his name comes up and people think that's me. All right. Well, can I can I mention one more thing before we go? You can mention five more things. Okay, well, no, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, I'm no longer a full-time correspondent. I stepped back from full-time uh, uh, reporting and journalism just over a year ago, my choice. Uh, and uh, I am anchoring a newscast a couple of days a week and uh, filling in uh, for the big guys when they go on vacation, which is fine. But, uh, you know, you get to a point in your life where you're ready to step back and do other things and, you uh, that's kind of where I am right now. I still get to do space, occasional reporting, uh, and it's just enough for me. I've had a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful career. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, you, you could start calling me an elder statesman now <laughs> yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I say that firmly with tongue in cheek. Uh, that that anybody cares about what I think is always uh, is always flattering and baffling to me because you know I'm still thinking you know I I still remember what it was like to work at at a radio station that could barely reach across town mm -hmm. and uh, I've been very very lucky in my life uh, I was married to a woman who said you lead a charmed life and she was absolutely right <laughs> uh, it, being being in the right place at the right time meeting the right people. And and all of those things, and I and I'm very very grateful for all of it, and uh, I'm glad I still get to keep my hand in it. But uh, unlike a lot of people who who this business has shoved aside over the years, you know, I've gotten a chance to do it uh, more on my own terms, uh, and uh, I, I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, the people at CBS have been wonderful to me in, in that regard, and uh, you know. Some some guys have all the luck, and that would be me. <laughs> That's great to hear, because there are a lot of guys who can't say that. And I I, yeah. I join you in that. I have no regrets whatsoever. I'm one of the few people that can say that I've never been fired in the broadcasting business. I quit once. Oh, good for you. But I have never been fired, and uh, not not too many people can say that. Maybe I'll fire myself. Well, I've from only this. been fired once, and it happened to, uh, after I'd been in the business for twenty years. So you know what? That's that's not too bad. I know people who got fired every every year or every two years. They made a lifetime out of it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, uh, Peter King. Thanks very much. We'll let you go, and you are invited to come back and uh, uh, be on our our podcast anytime you wish. If we have more to talk about, uh, if you think of something that. Uh, we can share with our audience. I'm more than happy to have you back. Oh, John, if you think of anything that you forgot to ask and you want to want me back on, I'm happy to do it anytime. If you're crazy enough to want me to talk for 45 minutes or so, you know how to find me. I'm right here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been fun. You've been listening to Talking About Radio with John Leslie a podcast that features conversation with the greatest broadcast professionals everywhere. If you'd like to be a guest on Talking About Radio and share your favorite radio stories, just send an email to talkingaboutradio at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.